And I don't know, since Pastor had you choose the song, why don't you choose the text? Let's have a volunteer tonight of where we'd like to preach. No, Ecclesiastes. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It's 6, almost 7 o'clock. And Pastor started like 10 minutes late, so it's not my problem. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. No, I'll try to be quick tonight. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're continuing in our series. This is the second message, but it's really the first thought. We're going to cover Ecclesiastes chapter number 1, and uh, we're going to cover the first 11 verses tonight. And so Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and uh, you listen silently and uh, read silently as I read aloud. Verse number 1 down through verse number 11. The Bible says, the words of the preacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then again, I said this last week, but such a familiar passage, even secularly, people know exactly what this verse says. It says in verse two, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down and hasteth to its place, to his place where he arose. The wind goeth towards the south and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence, it, uh, uh, unto the, place from whence uh, the rivers came, thither they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The thing that, that, uh, that has been, uh, is it, uh, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new. It hath been already of old time, which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things. Neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that uh, shall come after. And for just a few moments tonight, in light of our series, Meaningless, and we're going again through the book of Ecclesiastes, I'd like to talk to you about this subject in light of our text, the emptiness of life, the emptiness of life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us very quickly uh, tonight as we go and and unpack this text. I pray that you'd be with me. Uh, I ask for your presence, as I have already asked, but just publicly, I want to ask that you'd fill this place. Uh, I'm thankful for a church that sings as as we do and and that we exalt your name and we lift up. I'm so thankful for that time. If anything, we need to make that time longer and this time shorter because I think you're more pleased with a church and a congregation that knits their hearts with one another in adoration of you. Lord, I love that. Lord, I pray uh, that you would be with the message tonight and that you'd fill me with your power, fill me with your spirit. I wouldn't say anything you don't want me to say, but I'd say everything that you do want me to say. I'd appreciate your help tonight, Lord. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for reading with me. All right. How about the Seahawks? How about the Seahawks? Today, they won. How many of you recorded it and I just ruined the game for you? Okay. So here's the thing. I'm from a sports city. I'm from Houston, Texas. Houston Astros, by the way, they tied it up last night, and it's 2-2. I'm not necessarily a diehard Astro fan, but I am excited to see that they're coming along. And so I'm from Texas. You guys know, uh, Brother Tracy, you know, everybody in Texas takes sports seriously. Am I right? I mean, we love sports. We've got the Astros, and uh, we've got the Rockets. We've got the Houston Texans. And so we take sports seriously. But I did not realize until I moved to the Northwest just how seriously you guys take the Seahawks it's different I'm not saying it's more because they're very crazy in Houston maybe it's because they win all the time and they're used to winning and you guys don't get to experience that all the time but uh, nonetheless you guys are avid fans 
And uh, a couple of years ago, I was, uh, w- when we came, we came in 2015, and we came to Wooden Valley, and I'm trying to knit my heart with you guys, and I'm trying to be accepted amongst the membership of Wooden Valley Baptist Church, and so everybody's an avid Seahawks fan, and so I figured, I need to know about the Seahawks. I need to become a Seahawks fan. And so I begin to study, and I begin to look, and uh, at the time, I was leading the choir, and I can remember coming to choir practice, and I said that, hey, how about them Seahawks? And everyone just instantly was mad at me they were frustrated because they had won and I'm kind of excited hey how about them Seahawks you don't say anything when you come to Wooden Valley Baptist Church about the score and the church said you don't if you don't know just don't do that let me learn from my mistake when you come to the church and you know the score keep your mouth shut because other people don't know the score and they want to find out the score later all right that's what I mean you guys are different all, I, that's not how I'm geared. I'm not geared that way where, I mean, I do care about the game and I care about how it plays out and, and I care about, uh, you know, watching the highlights and so forth, but you know what I want to know? The score. I want to know the score. I want to know who won the game. I'll go back later and I'll watch, but if you know the score and you know who won, I want you to come tell me. That's how I'm geared, but you guys are not geared that way, and that's just how I function, not just with sports, but I function that way with entertainment, and it drives my wife crazy. I like to watch a movie, and I like to know, you know, who killed who before we even get into the, uh, get into the, the movie, or maybe I'm, I'm that way with other movies or shows. You can tell me the plot line, and I'm okay. How many of you are not that way? You want to have the anticipation build up, right? Uh, you want to you know exactly what happens at the end. If you're, if you're reading in literature, if you're reading a book, you want to know who killed the guy at the end, not the beginning, Right? And so everybody's kind of geared that way. That's just not how I am, though. I just want to know, give, give me the context at the beginning, and I'll find out the rest later, and I can enjoy things later on. But I want to know at the beginning what takes place. I want to know the score, all right? And so in, in writing and in, in, in reading, I'm not a bookworm, and so I had to have my brother-in-law help me out. He's a bookworm. And I asked him this week because I saw a term that I was unfamiliar with, and the term is literary climactic beginning. A literary climactic beginning. I'm not a bookworm, and I don't know anything about books, but he loves reading. And so he sent me this. Uh, I was asking how to define it and maybe how to identify it and how to articulate it. So he sent me this, uh, he sent me this uh, article, and so I was reading the article. And good writers, not all, but most good writers, what they're going to do is understanding how most of you are geared, they're going to save the score for the end, Right? You begin reading and they introduce characters. You begin reading and they, they introduce series and they begin to introduce scenes and they begin to introduce everything until you get to the end. It's an inductive and a deductive de- approach. Either they build from it or build to it. And so I kind of noticed that kind of style in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, it's known as, uh, the, the very beginning of the text is known as a literary climactic beginning. Again, he does not apologize for giving you the score at the very beginning of the chapter. You know exactly what it's about. You know exactly what Solomon is trying to say, even within the first 11 verses of the first chapter. He doesn't introduce characters, he doesn't introduce themes, he doesn't introduce descriptive locations or visuals. Lamar, why is any of that important? Consider who is writing. This is Solomon. And again, we learned this last week, but Solomon is the penman of three books in the Word of God. The Song of Solomon, the Book of Proverbs, and then this book of Ecclesiastes. And so go over to Song of Solomon. Actually, don't go over. I believe it'll be on the screen. The Song of Solomon. Let's just read and let's get a feel for the Song of Solomon. Verse number one. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. 
Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For thy love is better than wine because of the savor of thy good ointments. Thy name is as ointment poured forth. You just want to dim the lights. I want to light a few candles. It's very romantic. Uh, don't get nervous. I'm not going to go into the actual text of Song of Solomon tonight. But you understand that it kind of, I mean, he likes the visual. He likes uh, the intricate details. And he sets the tone and begins to set the characteristics of the book and kind of builds anticipation. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse number 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction. To perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, and judgment, and equity, to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man, knowledge, and discretion. Again, Solomon is known in the book of Proverbs for writing such a a beautiful poetic form. In, in, In such a beautiful poetic form, you read the book of Proverbs, and even the world will quote the book of Proverbs, not because of its truth, but because of the way that it's written. You know, and just the intricate detail and the vocabulary and the vernacular that he uses. And then you get to the book of Ecclesiastes. And the book of Ecclesiastes is nothing like the book of Song of Solomon. It's nothing like the book of, of Proverbs. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, saith the preacher. Everything is worthless. Right, right from the beginning. You see in, in verse number two, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There's no mistaking what he's trying to get across here. Solomon doesn't care if you've seen the game. He just wants you to know the score. He wants you to know. He doesn't care about uh, the thoughts that he's developed in previous books. He wants you to know the conclusion. And here it is. Everything is meaningless. From the very beginning, even within the first chapter, the second verse of the first chapter, we know the score. Solomon's opinion of life is that everything amounts to nothing. It's worthless. We said it this way last week. Life without God at the center is meaningless. In 2009, a few social scientists from John Hopkins University surveyed 8,000 students from 48 different universities in several different states, and here was their one-word survey. Ready? What is the most important thing in life? What is the most important thing in life? That's the only question that was on the survey. 16% gave the answer, making money. Making money, and... That's, that's a large portion of the world. That's what they live for. They believe that life is all about making money, accumulate as much wealth as you possibly can before you die because everybody knows that when you die, you take your riches right with you, right? Making money, that was uh, 16%. 9% gave differing answers based on their own context, whether their own walk of life, the relationship that they were in, the classes that they were taking, but 75% gave this answer. And here it is. What is the most important thing in life? Here it is, to find the real meaning and purpose in life. 75%. How many of you have ever read the book by Rick Warren, The Purpose Driven Life? Purpose Driven Life. I thought this was interesting. Did you know that 62% of the sales in regards to that book, The Purpose Driven Life, were simply because the word purpose was in the title? 62%, it is said, of of people that purchased the book, uh, Purpose Driven Life, did so just because the name purpose is in the title. Inside of the book, uh, Hugh Moorhead, one of the leading intellectuals and uh, uh, philosophers of our day, asks a question to over 250 of the most brilliant minds amongst humanity. And here was his question. It's very similar to the question that the, uh, uh, the, the people from John Hopkins asked, but a little bit different. Here's what they ask. What is the purpose to life? 
What is the purpose to life? Of the 250, get this, of the 250, these are the most brilliant minds that humanity has to offer. Of the 250 people, 232 came back to say this. If you find out what the meaning of life really is, please let me know. He asked the question, what's the purpose of life? Vast majority, 232 of the 250 say, when you find out, let me know. That teaches us something about humanity. Teaches us two things about humanity. The first thing that it teaches us is that people are longing to find purpose. People are vastly longing to find purpose. They're desiring to find the meaning to life. I can think of very few people that I know personally who are just living life to die. No, everybody lives for a purpose. They're trying to achieve the purpose. They're trying to find it. And they will devote their life. Most of them will devote their youth to trying to acquire that very thing. I want to find purpose. But it teaches us something else. It teaches us that although they pursue purpose, no one really believes that you can find purpose. No one actually believes that although they'll live their life in pursuit of purpose, no one actually believes that you can find it. I read this quote, and I've read it in sermons before, but I thought that it fits so perfectly with the message tonight. Youth is a waste, manhood a struggle, and old age despair. Youth is a waste, manhood a struggle, and old age despair. Anybody who knows the name of Jesus Christ would disagree, but Solomon might agree. Solomon would probably agree with that statement. Solomon would also say youth is a waste, manhood a struggle, and old age despair. As a matter of fact, he said it, but a little bit differently. Here's what he said. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity, saith the preacher. All is vanity. Everything is meaningless. And like we said last week, Solomon was the wisest man to ever live, but he dies having not applied the very wisdom that he found out in his own life. And I wanted to expound upon this last week, and I didn't really have time, but did you know that there's a difference between having wisdom and having knowledge? Oh man, there's a difference between having wisdom and having knowledge. You can have all the knowledge in the world, but be, the dumber, be dumber than a bag of rocks. That describes a lot of our politicians. They have all the amount of knowledge, but they have no discretion, they have no discernment, and not an ounce of wisdom about them. I like how Solomon puts it in his, in his book, Proverbs, chapter number 9 and verse number 10. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. You can have knowledge, but knowledge without application is just knowledge. Knowledge without application is just knowledge. You know, humanity is hungry for knowledge. Again, and I just mentioned it just a moment ago, but everybody will devote their life to that very thing, the pursuit of just knowing a little bit more. I just want to know a little bit more. Man, the invention of a cell phone has drastically changed our pursuit of knowledge, has it not? Everybody's a scholar now. And I'm not just talking about uh, looking things up that matter. I'm talking about even things like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. They're just a form of knowledge. What, what, what's the knowledge about? Worthless things that don't matter. I want knowledge about what uh, Brother Parker is eating for lunch today. So I'm going to get on Facebook and I'm going to look. I, I want knowledge about uh, how many of you hate those, I can't say the S word. How many of you hate those dumb videos that just make you hungry? It's like those little, those little videos that show you how to make something. You know what I'm talking about? And all you want to do is just quit what you're doing and go make something that you ought not have. We, we want knowledge. I don't want to be crude, but how, how many of you, be honest, you're in church, how many of you take your cell phone when you go to the bathroom? How many of you are liars? Everyone else. We take our cell phone to the bathroom because that's where we do most of our study. That's where we do most of our scrolling. That's where we do most of our research. Why? Because we are hungry for knowledge. Everybody wants to know more. 
man, I know I'm being funny tonight, I'm trying to be cute, but at the same time, manhood, I'm talking about the secular realm, they are in the pursuit of knowledge and nothing else. I just want to know more. They will devote 10, 15, 20 years of schooling just to know more. They want to know more. But it's not just humanity that is hungry for knowledge. Did you know that Christianity is hungry for knowledge too? Christianity, I went to Bible college and I went to Heartland. I was amazed at the amount of people there who all they wanted to do was just know more about the Bible. They wanted to know more about the Bible. You say, Lamar, what's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that. And I believe that we ought to know more about the word of God. But their pursuit was simply this. I want to know more about the Bible. I want to know more about God. I want to know more about Jesus Christ, know more about doctrine. But I don't have a relationship with him. I don't have a relationship with him that is based upon the knowledge that I have. No, rather, I just want to know more. I just want to be logicious. I want to be wise. I want to be understanding. I want to know the scriptures. Pastor, I ought to be able to teach a Sunday school class because of all the knowledge that I have. That's not wisdom. James puts it this way. James chapter 4 and verse number 17. First message I ever preached as a, I believe I was a nine-year-old boy, was from James chapter 4 and verse number uh, 17. It says, therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, at least he has knowledge. No. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, what? To him it is sin. To him it is sin. Knowledge means nothing without application. It doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter how much you claim to know. You're as dumb as a bag of rocks if you do not apply the knowledge that you have. Knowledge becomes wisdom when that knowledge is applied. You understand? Am I going over anybody's heads tonight? Do we understand what I'm talking about? Therefore, we could actually derive from the life of Solomon that he was the most knowledgeable person to ever live, but wisdom was far removed from Solomon when he passes from the scene at the end of his life. Solomon had all the knowledge that a guy could ask for, yet he lacked wisdom and discernment and understanding. He did not apply the very knowledge that we are reading about tonight. And I'd like us to look very quickly at the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes. And I'd like us to look at what Solomon has to say about an empty life. The emptiness of life. If you're taking notes very quickly, number one, I want you to notice the address of a researcher. The address of a researcher. Solomon had all the means necessary, the mind necessary, and the resources necessary to come to the knowledge of the purpose of life. Because of all of these things in the life of Solomon, and I'm not going to talk about them again. I talked about them last week, but he had wealth beyond measure, and he had wisdom beyond compare, did some great works, and all of those things, because of all of those things, Solomon was more qualified to decipher an answer to that very question. What is the purpose of life? He had no limitations regarding his potential to unfold the purpose behind what life is really all about. A few things I'd like us to notice about his research. Number one, I want you to notice the word Ecclesiastes. The word Ecclesiastes, what does it mean? Ecclesiastes means a gathering or to accumulate, a a gathering or to accumulate. So you could almost imagine that Solomon's intention behind this very book was to gather or accumulate a crowd to hear about his research. The book Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, that word means a gathering. The second word I want you to notice is the word preacher. Pastor referenced it this morning, the word preacher. When we think of a preacher, no doubt most of us think of what Pastor Farinella did this morning or what I'm doing right now. Someone who gets behind a pulpit like this and is going to open up the word of God and begin to proclaim, thus saith the Lord. That's kind of what we think about. But the Greek word used here is the word, and I hope I don't butcher it, koheleth. Koheleth, which literally means this, speaker or quester. It means speaker or quester. What is a quester? A quester is someone who goes through a process of researching a particular topic or subject. 
That's a quester. For Solomon, we all know what his quest was about. It's what the book of, of Ecclesiastes is about, finding purpose. And that's what Solomon is devoting his latter life to. Is to devo- he's devoting it to qu- uh, this quest. I need to find the purpose of life. Another word I want you to notice is the word vanity. The word vanity appears 38 different times in the book of Ecclesiastes alone. The Greek word used here is hebel. Hebel, which literally means emptiness, void of matter, and nothing. 38 different times Solomon uses that word hebel or vain or vanity to say something is empty, void of matter, or nothing. And fourthly, I want you to notice the phrase, under the sun. Going over just different phrases that are appear even in the first uh, chapter, uh, the phrase under the sun appears 25 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. That phrase simply means this, life on earth. Not very complex. Under the sun, life on earth. So we could summarize all of this into one simple statement. Here we go. This is what Solomon is trying to get ac- across in this climactic literary beginning. Here's what he's trying to say. Life here on earth without God at the center, is empty, void of matter, and nothing. Let's connect the dots between what we developed last week. Life without God at the center is meaningless. It's pointless. Life is meaningless without God at the center. That's the address of a researcher. The address of a quester, someone who's devoted his latter life to trying to find the purpose. And here's the, here's the conclusion that he reaches. Life without God at the center, meaningless. Number two, I want you to notice the analysis of repetition. The analysis of repetition. In verse three through verse number seven, Solomon is gonna give us four illustrations of life. Gonna give us four illustrations of life, and here is what his analysis is regarding life. And ready? It's very profound. Life is repetitive. Life is repetitive. Life just keeps going round and round and round. It keeps repeating itself over and over again. Look at verse three, it says, What profit hath a man of his own labor which he taketh under the sun? In other words, here's what he's trying to say. Trying to control your life is like trying to shovel smoke. Trying to control your life is like trying to rake a bunch of feathers in a hurricane. It's kind of worthless. It's kind of purposeless. You can try and give it your best shot, but you know what's it going to profit you is what he says. What's it going to get you? You're trying so desperately hard to control your life, and it's going to get you nothing. It's not going to profit you anything. And I want you to consider again who's saying this. This is Solomon. Solomon is the one who's giving this, this proclamation, and he's trying to expound upon this truth. He's one who has all the knowledge. He's got a great education. He has wealth. He's got a great reputation. And humanly speaking, he has a lot to show for his life. He was, again, a successful king uh, for the nation of Israel, but here he's speaking by experience and saying this, I have nothing to show for life that that, that I've tried so desperately hard to control. I have nothing to show for it. Again, he gives these four illustrations. We'll go through them quickly. First thing he gives is the course of life. Number one, the course of life. Look at verse number four. One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. I'll read that again, and I want you to lock in. I know I was reading words, and maybe sometimes, maybe you've already tuned me out. Tune back in. Look, look, look at this text. Ready? One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. Sad but true. True statement. In other words, don't blink because life will be over before you know it. Don't blink because life will be over before you know it. James says it in chapter 4 and verse number 14. He says, whereas ye know what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? 
It is a vapor. It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Uh, let me just talk to the older generation for just a moment, and you younger guys, listen. How many of you in the older generation believe that life has just passed you by? How many of you believe, uh, you're coming to the end of your life, how many of you would agree with the statement, life is quick? Life is fast. I mean, it feels like just yesterday you were raising your kids. It feels like just yesterday you got married, and then all of a sudden you got grandkids, and some of you even great-grandkids. All of a sudden, some of you are retired. and all. Hey, what happened to yesterday? I mean, life is quick. It, it goes quickly. We, life is like a vapor. It appeareth for a brief time, and then it vanisheth away. Thus is the course of life. Talks about the course of life. Secondly, it talks about the circle of the sun. This is all connected. It talks about the circle of the sun. Secondly, in verse number five, the sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. In other words, Solomon is saying that life is as the rising and the setting of the sun. Sun goes up, sun goes down. Sun goes up, sun goes down. Every single day that you've been alive, did you know that that's the one constant? Sun has gone up and the sun has gone down. Since the beginning of time, with the exception of Joshua and the battle of Gibeon, every single day the sun has gone up and the sun has gone down. It's risen and it's set. Again, we appear for a time, but mark it down, our time on earth is set for everyone and there is an expiration date to life. He gives the course of life and he gives the circle of the sun. Thirdly, he gives the circuit of the winds. I love this. Look at verse number six. The wind goeth towards the south and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. I love this. Here's what he's saying. Life is predictable in that it's got a beginning and an end. Just like the sun. It begins, it have a life, and then it ends. But then he says this. Life is as unpredictable as the wind. It goes north, it goes south, it whirleth continually. How many of you feel like life is just a continuous hurricane of changing scenery, changing events, changing problems, cha uh, changing successes, everything in life from the beginning of life to the end of life is unpredictable. You have no idea how life is going to treat you. Uh, think not what is on the morrow, the Bible says. You have no idea what tomorrow holds. You might have it planned, you might have it set out, you might have a schedule, but you know what? It's all variable. Why? Life is as the wind. It is unpredictable. It, it turneth about. It whirleth continually. He gives the course of life and the circle of the sun and the circuit of the winds very quickly. Then he gives this analysis. The circle, or excuse me, the cycle of the waters. The cycle of the waters. Verse number seven, and he's kind of just reiterating what he's been saying this whole time. He says, all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. This is so neat. You know what Solomon is doing? Before science has proven it so, you know what Solomon is doing? He's giving the process of evaporation. Very cool. He's giving the process of evaporation. Here's what he's saying. The clouds bring rain. The rain uh, forms rivers, the rivers flow into the sea, but the water evaporates from the sea back into the clouds. That is our law of evaporation. Solomon is saying that life is like a circle of the sun, the cycle of the winds, and the cycle of the waters. Life comes, it goes, and there's no telling what is going to happen in between. But it's not just any life. Remember what life he's talking about? He's not talking about life in general. He's talking about life without God at the center. That's how life is. Here's what Solomon is saying. Life without God at the center is mechanical monotony. It's nothing more than a predictably unpredictable, empty cycle of repetition. 
In other words, Lamar, stop beating a dead horse. Life is meaningless. Life is meaningless without God at the center. We see the address of a researcher and then we see the analysis of repetition. This is my favorite, number three. We see the annoyance of routine. The annoyance of routine. Solomon is at his wit's end when he's writing the book of Ecclesiastes. Again, he's done all, experienced all, and he's got the t-shirt to prove it. He's at his wit's end. He's frustrated. He's annoyed. What's he annoyed at? Routine. He's annoyed at routine. He's annoyed at repetition. How many of you are like me and you love routine? It's your favorite thing. I love routine. Routine is what I base my very life upon. Uh, I mean, everything, uh, this is, okay, I'm going to let you in a little secret. The conflict that me and Pastor Farinella have in in our ministry is that I like to follow an order of service. And as we saw tonight, he doesn't. (laughs) I I mean, that's just how we're geared. I I like, okay, everything has to happen exactly when it's supposed to happen. I'm all about routine. You can ask my wife. I love making lists. How many of you are like me and you like routine? Routine is a great thing, right? No, routine is a great thing when it accomplishes something. It's only a great thing when it accomplishes something. Routine is only a good thing when it accomplishes a purpose. Uh, Brother Clem, every single day this month I went to the gym. Every single day, man, right there. Every single day I went to the gym. Every single day I went to the gym. Ask me what workouts I did. Every single day I went to the gym. Every single day. Hey, Brother James, every single day this, this month I went to the gym. Ask me if today was leg day or upper body day. Every single day I went to the gym. Every single day I pulled into the gym, I ate my Chick-fil-A, I sat for just a moment, and then I returned home. But every single day I went to the gym. (laughs) Hey, hey, uh, we laugh, but how many of us are guilty of doing routines that accomplish nothing? They don't accomplish anything. It makes just as much sense for me to go to the gym and to do nothing at the gym as it would for me to just stay home. Routine is only beneficial when it accomplishes something. Solomon is tired of meaningless routine. I want you to notice what he says. First, he says this of the routine. Nothing is fulfilling. Nothing is fulfilling. Verse number eight. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled, uh, excuse me, filled with hearing. You know what Solomon is saying? Life is boring. Routine is boring. It accomplishes nothing. I'm tired of it. I've had enough of the routine. I get no satisfaction with the routine of life. I'm never satisfied. Uh, Brother Brother Fleet was there last night, and I asked him if I could use him as an illustration, but ever since I moved here, Brother Fleet has been my fishing buddy. And I can remember coming to the Northwest and and going fishing, and we, we reminisced about this last night. You know where it started? Me and Brother Fleet started in our float tubes, all right? I got a little float tube. I had a little float tube. It was a little circular tube, uh, almost like a diaper. You'd get into it, and you'd pull it up, and uh, you'd float around, and you'd fish. It was very cool. And Brother F- uh, Fleet, he still got this U-shaped uh, float tube, and so we'd go out, went out to Cottage Lake. I remember many times going and fishing, and we're not complaining or anything like that, but I remember just sitting, fellowship, and fishing. You know what we're saying to each other? And it'd be nice. We had a boat. That'd be nice, man. Wouldn't it be nice if we just had nothing, nothing big, just like a little eight-foot Olympian, you know, a little trolling motor. We could just putter around. That'd be wonderful. And fast forward, I've had three different boats. Brother Fleet's boat is currently at my house. I'm doing some repair work on it, but I remember being over at Sammamish Lake, and we're sitting on Sammamish Lake on this little eight-foot boat, barely enough room for your legs to fit in. And you know what we're saying? Man, oh man, be nice to have a 14-foot boat. Man, if we had like an Evan Rood 14 horsepower engine, and if we had, and you know what, if we got that, you know what else we'd be saying? Man, it'd be great to have something bigger than that. 
It'd be great to have something bigger than that. Am I, are we the only ones? Do we not operate that way? We are always in pursuit of something bigger and better than what we had before. We're never satisfied. We're never satisfied with what we have. Why? Because it can't satisfy us. We have it in our very human nature to desire something that we do not have. It's ingrained in our sin nature. He also says this, nothing is fresh. Nothing is fulfilling. Nothing is fresh. Look at verse number nine. I love this. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. How many of you have ever heard that in the secular realm? There's no new thing under the sun. Is there anything thereof? It may be said, see, this is new. It hath been already of old time, which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. I think we understand what he's getting at. I think we understand what he's saying, and I don't want to bleed into the point that I just made that nothing is fulfilling, but nothing is fresh in that we can keep pursuing after thing, after thing, after thing, but nothing is going to fulfill us. Why? Because nothing is new. No, 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 no. I want a new car. I want a new boat. No, it might be new to you, but the idea of pursuing bigger and better didn't, didn't just come about when you entered the scene. Man, since the dawn of time, has been doing that very thing, pursuing bigger and better, and you know what? Solomon's saying this, there is nothing new. Nothing is new. Everything is stale. We see the address of a researcher, and we see the analysis of repetition, and we see the annoyance of routine. Lastly tonight, very quickly, the answer revealed. Uh, the answer revealed, and I, I don't want to uh, beat around the bush, and I, I told you there's no cliffhangers in this series. You know where we're headed, but here's the question that I want us to answer by the end of this series what can I do to avoid an empty life? What can I do to avoid an empty life? Again, we see the term under the sun repeated 25 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And Solomon has lived a life under the sun. Solomon has lived a life in pursuit of things that are temporal and things that are earthly and things that are worldly, pleasures and wealth and more and more and more knowledge. Solomon has experienced everything. He's lived out a life and seen everything that the world has to offer. I want us to look at a contrast, though. What's Paul say? What's Paul say in Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 1? If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are what? Well, no, no, answer with me. Seek those things which are what? Above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things what? Above. Then he says, not on things on the earth. If we were to look at the contrast between Colossians 1 and the life of Solomon, you know what we would see? Solomon lived a life of pursuit of things under the sun. Paul commands us to seek those things which are above. Solomon set his affections on things like women, money, knowledge, worldly possessions, and earthly possessions, and wealth, and, and works, and everything that he could accumulate under the sun. Paul tells us, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Look at another contrast of Saul, or excuse me, uh, uh, of Paul and Solomon and their experiences. Solomon comes to the conclusion that life lived out in service to self would be a life of emptiness, void of matter, and nothingness. We called it vanity, remember? That's what, what Solomon would say. Life, when you live for yourself and you live uh, pursuing after things that are going to gratify yourself and uplift yourself, you know what? It's all worthless. It's meaningless. Everything is vanity, Paul tells us. 1 Corinthians, the great, uh, the great resurrection chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 58. 
Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor, look at this, is not in vain in the Lord. Solomon lived a life filled with the pleasures that anyone, all the pleasures that anyone could want to experience under the sun, but his conclusion was this, life is vain. Life is vanity. Paul was beaten, lived a life free of earthly possessions, and likely beheaded at the end of his life, and here's his conclusion. Life is not vain. Life means something. What's the difference? Back up one verse in verse number 57 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, but thanks be to God. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what he's telling the, the Corinthian church? He builds the very beginning of the chapter talking about this. Our faith is not vain because our Savior's resurrection is authentic. We serve a risen Savior. So know, you know what his conclusion is? He didn't have all the earthly possessions that Solomon had. He didn't have all the accomplishments that Solomon had. We don't even know if he had a wife, let alone a thousand. But you know what he says? Because Jesus Christ is risen and because I'm a beneficiary of that resurrection, life is not vain in the Lord. Thanks be to God. When God is at the center, we experience victory through Jesus Christ. Life is filled with purpose. And in contrast to what we're talking about tonight, when Christ is at the center, when God is at the center, life is not empty. Life is full. Simple closing. Let's ask three questions and we're done. Question number one. <clears throat> Are you applying the knowledge you have? What does this text teach us? Are you applying the knowledge you have? I can preach till I'm blue in the face. Every single day for the rest of eternity, pastor could do the same, your Sunday school teacher could do the same, your parents could do the same, and you know what? Does it matter your response? We're gonna continue to be faithful to preach the word of God and let the seed do the work. But in a very real sense, I could spend the rest of my life trying to exhibit the truth of the word of God, but it will mean nothing if you don't apply it. It means nothing. I come to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, revivals, and I come to church for uh, uh, special meetings, and I come to Sunday school, and I come to men's Bible study, and I'm constantly being uh, pumped full of knowledge. That means nothing if you're not applying it. It means nothing if you're not being a doer of the word and not just a hearer only, what, is, what does James say? Deceiving your own selves. It's as though you're walking around with a big L on your forehead and you don't even know it. We're going to get to it at the end of, uh, of Ecclesiastes, but we ought to be faithful to the commitments and the commandments of God. What's he talking about? Be faithful not just to have knowledge, but to apply the knowledge. That's wisdom. Second question I want to ask, and it's kind of tied into the third question. Is there purpose to your routine in life? Is there purpose to your routine in life? Let me ask the third question to qualify the second. Is Christ at the center of that purpose? Is Christ at the center of your, of your purpose? Uh, all the things that you do in day-to-day -day life, if you're like me and you have a routine, that's great. And maybe you're accomplishing something. That's why I asked the third question, is Christ at that center? Man, I'm all for an education. I'm all for an education, and I believe, uh, I, I love it when parents push their kids to pursue their education, but not at the expense of the preaching of the Word of God. You might have your schedule, you might have AP classes, and you might be achieving a lot of things, but if you're not pursuing after the things of God, you're just pumping yourself full of knowledge with no purpose. I love a job. I have one, and it's a great job. But, uh, but if you're living in pursuing after your job and rising in the corporate ladder, you might achieve a lot and your routine might bring product, 
But if that product is anything shy of what God has for your life, meaningless and worthless. It's not just about having a routine. It's not just about having a purpose and accomplishing something. It's God being at the center of your purpose and your routine. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us tonight. Thank you so much.